The Urban Broadcast Collective brings together the best podcasts on cities and urban life. Subscribe to us on SoundCloud and Apple Podcasts. If you want to see the political impact of Chinese artists, we can look to the city in order to see that. My name is Kristen Cornell. I'm working in the Department of Gender and Cultural Studies. Welcome to City Road. I'm Dallas Rogers, and today, art and cities. So before 1989, most of the artists who were operating in Beijing were either from Beijing or they were studying at the universities there. But after the 1989 protests in Tiananmen Square, Chinese cities entered a period of radical social and spatial reorganisation. And during the process, artists began to move from the countryside into the city. Some artists took up residence in the old communist compounds that had once housed the collective work units. Compounds that were now earmarked for demolition. But after 89 and again, 92 kickstarted a new wave of migration too. A lot of people started to come into the cities and this is when the artists started to live originally in villages because they were emptying out and available. They were often on the edge of the city and the city was always growing. So they were low rent places. So you've probably heard of Ai Weiwei, the contemporary and controversial Chinese artist. Ai Weiwei lived in a compound that they, they very self-consciously called it an art district from the beginning, called Di. He now lives in Europe. Ai Weiwei also designed the so-called Bird's Nest Stadium for the Beijing Olympics. And what you might not know about artists like Ai Weiwei is that they're reshaping the physical, cultural and perhaps even the political fabric of Beijing. So in the city, we have existing systems of an old ideological system, if it's socialist architecture or even traditional architecture, and we have new ones that are bringing in logics such as creative industries, and we need to have artists in the city in order to make money. And the artists very cleverly worked with these existing systems, rather than in oppositional ways, in order to affect the shape of the city over time. Because now, there are art districts that are basically replicating this model all over the country. Every time there's a new urban development, they say, oh, we'll put in an art district. And they're a simulation over and over again. One of the most famous art districts in Beijing is called 798. Even 798 has a genealogy that goes back to those artists' villages, which, again, were a kind of appropriation of existing communal architecture. So this is an example of how the artists worked with what was already there and then slowly kind of insinuated their spaces into the urban logic. And so I argue that that's an example of participation in the shape and the logic and the construction of the new society that was very, very effective and was done very discreetly. And focusing in on discrete political activism is important in China, because in cities like Beijing, it's often the more overt or sporadic signs of urban protests, such as the protests at Tiananmen Square, that capture our attention. The post-reform era in China saw the mass migration of people into Chinese cities and the rapid urbanisation of the country. In the decades that followed, artists from around the country moved to Beijing and some of them took up residence in the sites that were earmarked for demolition. And they named these sites artistic villages and contemporary arts districts, ideas and labels that continue to define these sections of the city today. And the history about how these arts districts came into being and the role of the artist as a political actor in Chinese society has a long history. 
The history that I look at that I find really interesting because it forms a really important backdrop to everything that happened from 1978 on. 1978 is when Deng Xiaoping first announced economic reforms and things started to change dramatically. Is that history that we could call socialist history? But that's a complicated term for discussing China because officially it's still a socialist country, right? So we can talk about um, from 1949, which is when Mao's revolution and uh, places like Beijing, but across the country, but my focus is Beijing, the city started to be rearranged according to socialist architectural design principles, collectivity, from 1949 to to 1978. That's a period that I can kind of answer that question with right now. Mm. And in that period, the artist had an explicitly political role. The artist uh, was supposed to serve society, is an expression in Chinese. Wei,为社会服务 means to serve the people. And so that... That art that was produced in that time by artists who were at that time conceived of essentially as like public servants. They had this very public role. They were part of the state apparatus. That art was what we might call propaganda, but in Chinese that's not a negative term. And it's still used, interestingly, to describe marketing, that same term. Mm. And the idea was because the artists were there to serve the people, they were there to realise the revolution, to help realise that utopian vision. And so it was a very instrumental role that artists had and it was prescribed by the government, but it was glorious and it had nothing to do with expressing your individual creativity. Individuality was not an important part of it. It was about collectively determining the future of the nation and the people, the public, towards a kind of socialist ideal. And trying to translate, because Maoist socialism is a sort of translation of a lot of the early Marxist and Leninist texts for rural conditions. During the Cultural Revolution, the artist was put to work in the service of Mao's propaganda machinery. And they produced the now iconic communist artworks that many people will be familiar with. Exactly. Uh, The art they produced was called Socialist Realism and producing through an aesthetic project the conditions for understanding what socialist life might be was a really important role that artists had and were proud of. And I'm sure that a lot of people can think up images of this, what we might call socialist propaganda. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking about people on tractors Mm. and ploughing fields. Can you just explain or describe some of this artwork? Yeah, exactly. Tractors and ploughing fields, because importantly in that work, industry is glorified. So that kind of rubs against Western ideas of the bucolic landscape. You'll often see this rural landscape in this kind of art, socialist propaganda during these years, and there'll be an enormous telegraph line or electric electricity kind of infrastructure will be crossing the countryside and that has this uplifting effect like a church will make us look up this infrastructure will make us look up to the sky and it points towards a more glorious future it's very graphic as well so later when economic reforms were begun and the same artists who had been trained in this kind of graphic popularizing aesthetic how to communicate broadly to an often illiterate public people, it was very easy for them to subvert these images and introduce elements such as Coca-Cola or other kind of hallmarks of Western capitalism to make a comment about the contradictory conditions which were now produced through having still a socialist government or a socialist state with market reform with Chinese characteristics. But bringing those two different systems together, it was interesting aesthetically you can see the means of communicating to a large group of people in socialist propaganda or in advertising is quite similar. 
In the immediate post-revolution period, the possibilities for public participation in urban activism and political debate were fairly limited in China. And it's within this period that the role of the artist in politics and placemaking radically changes. So in 1978, Deng Xiaoping announces economic reforms. And throughout the 80s, from 1978 up until 1989, which is when the protests at Tiananmen Square, in that period, there is this extremely dynamic and fervent period of discursive activity where intellectuals and artists from around the country debate and negotiate what a Chinese modernity should be. If we're going to have this turning point now, like 1978 suggested, then what would a Chinese modernity be if it was not in Mao's vision, that version of socialism? And a lot of the techniques that they borrowed and used at the time were ones that they understood, which were still quite socialist in the sense of collective action. And there were arguments that that the artist should be part of campaigns. And there were artistic exhibitions and movements that can, were called Can you campaigns. tell me about some of those? Yeah, so the first and most famous was held by a group called The Stars, a kind of loosely formed collection of art students and other people who were kind of boldly suggesting that art might not only be to serve politics, that there might be something where art had its own mission, its own kind of path. Inclu- this included Ai Weiwei, this group who's probably the best-known international Chinese artist, and another artist called Huang Roy, who's been very influential in China since. They staged a protest, which began in the streets, and they they walked around kind of declaring the rights for art that might be independent from that national project, and they held their artworks, they, they, they held an exhibition in an open, in a park out the front of the National Museum of Art. So it was a kind of uh, stage-off between the institution a face-off between the institution that represented the art nationally, the art system, and then there they were in the park spontaneously holding their own exhibition, which declared a different purpose for art. Then the years went by. It was still very difficult to do this kind of work, but there was an impetus, a political drive amongst the artists that made this sort of discursive work make sense. It was resonant and it still was resonant because they would borrow terms like campaign and movement that had had resonance in the 70s. These were even Maoist terms, political technologies that had made sense at that time. And so they were the most available ways of getting things done. So they continued with these. And it was very, very discursive, very much about what you would put in your artworks. And it also was resting on an idea that that artists should have this very public role. So in 1985, there was another one called the Baowu Yundong. Yundong means movement. And uh, that was an example of artists from around the country holding these collective exhibitions, which were very confrontational, demanding that art should be able to challenge and to go into new areas. The the Baowu Yundong, the 1985 movement, was very experimental with new media. It involved a lot of installations and. How important is the fabric of the city? in in this artwork, if at all. Okay, so the way that I see the 80s is very distinct from the 90s is, yes, the artists were living in the city, but urban change was not as dramatic at that time and their work was very discursive. So there was 85 and then there was 89, where again the artists sort of occupied the National Museum of Art. So the artists were living in the city, but a lot of their exhibitions were private. They were in houses because at that time there wasn't a public scene to to show art that was made outside of that bureaucratic or academic system. But 1989, it became very difficult to take that very public discursive role 
as an artist, to organise collectively. 1989 at Tiananmen Square, a lot of people say it was the culmination of this very active decade of discursive work where artists and intellectuals saw themselves in a very public role and that it, it culminated in a way that was um, shocking for many and very soon after 1989, in 1992, Deng Xiaoping announces another round of economic reforms, which firmly kind of institutionalised this new market economy. And those changes started to be felt very keenly in the city. You're listening to City Road on 2SCR 107.3 FM in Sydney. You can also find us on the web at cityroadpod.org. And now the conversation turns to how the new wave of Chinese artists are reshaping the urban environment and urban politics and an arts district called 798. Okay, so 798 also began around about the turn of the century, same time that Ai Weiwei was moving into Tsautandi. There are debates about exactly who moved in first, but at some point in the early 2000s, a collection of artists kind of gathered enough numbers to consider themselves a community. And they moved into this old uh, socialist work unit. It was a factory, an enormous space, much of which has been lost now. But at the time, the Dunway, the socialist work unit, had become basically like a property enterprise and they were desperately trying to stay afloat and all they could do was rent out these spaces, which like many other post-industrial art spaces these days had high ceilings, great for artists, they could build sculpture and the rents were really cheap. But again, there was a huge wall around it. So once you went in, you could develop your own community, which was spatially discreet from the rest of the city, which was how a lot of these places managed to develop their own sense of identity and public without the rest of the city, including the government, actually being aware of their existence. So they were kind of separated in that sense. But very quickly, because these were the artists that the international dealers were interested in, the money and the connections came in too. And the artists are very savvy too at making best use of their social capital. They're really very, very good Chinese artists at networking. There's a term for it in Chinese, guanxi. So they introduced the foreign dealers. Galleries started to develop inside this beautiful industrial space. They all, artists and gallerists alike, noticed the, the remnants of the socialist history and they polished up the logos that exhorted people to work harder that were in the factories. So there'd be Mao quotations up on the ceiling. And so they restored all of these original features, which at the time were sort of invisible to the central government. The central government was just very busy knocking everything down and building a new city, building a new post socialist city without looking back. And it, it was kind of ironically, perhaps, the artists who revealed the value of this space to people, firstly internationally, and then later to the government because the city government had planned to demolish it, or at least the people who were now managing this site, who were party affiliated, they're called Seven Stars, they were the old socialist work unit. When they were reincorporated as a real estate company, they changed their name to Seven Stars and they just wanted to demolish it and rebuild. But the artists staged a very clever campaign using discourses such as creative industries, global cities, even arts-led gentrification. They were using that in a positive sense, going to the city government and saying, look what you could do, look what we could do for you if you make this an arts precinct. It will become like Soho and gentrification was not a dirty word at the time. And they had all these other examples of industrial precincts around the world that had been transformed by artists and had then put that city on the map. So it was a great time to be putting forward those arguments. It's, it, it shows just how literate the artists were in those sorts of 
policy languages and logics at the time. And they put out a rash of publications, books that were mostly bought by foreigners who were interested in what was going on at the site. Many of them were very kind of politically clever, kind of astute, putting forward these stories, like I say, again and again, of how once artists move into an old industrial area, you have this social regeneration, this economic regeneration. It's really good for real estate values. And the government were convinced, this was in 2004, they first started to pay attention. 2008 was coming up and that was the Olympics. This argument was made that you need to have an example of new Chinese culture at the Olympics, and the government thought that was a good argument. And they announced 798 as the one of the first in the country's creative and cultural industries precincts, and then they took over administration of it, and a lot of things changed in the workings of the site from then on. So I see this as an act of almost like DIY city governance, mm-hmm. almost artists shifting the focus of their art onto the urban fabric itself. Do you see it that way? I see... um, If we look at the art, we see that throughout this time, a lot of art has been made about urbanisation. It's an unavoidable theme in contemporary Chinese art because... I guess I'm talking about the building. So the actual... Like building buildings and designing them and constructing communities is sort of like a political art project in itself. Yeah. Is that a stretch? Well, it's... I would argue that it's a really important form of political engagement or mode of political engagement that it's really worth recognising, especially when we look to Chinese artists and we say, oh, where is evidence of their political work? The first thing we do is we go to their artworks and we say, oh, is this subversive? What happens? Can you can you exhibit this in your country? I think we have quite simplistic ideas of what is and isn't political and we have a very limited kind of aperture within which we look for those sorts of signs. I think if we expand it and we look at the ways that Contemporary Chinese artists have occupied and used Beijing as my example, but there are other examples. Beijing is a good example, though, because it's kind of the pointy end for a lot of this occupation and then the change that resulted from it. Then, yes, I think you can see actually how canny and effective these artists have been over time. It's not only in constructing sites. So Taotandi is interesting. That's the Ai Weiwei one because he did build buildings. But the majority of examples, especially in the earlier years, 90s, and then up to the transformation of 798, which was in 2005, it's about how they appropriated places, how they appropriated these little bubbles of possibility that were available just for a really short time in the city. They would move in appropriate the architecture in some instances, like at 798 was an old socialist work unit, an old Dunway. They would reclaim the history and they would polish up the slogans that had been written on the walls. And they knew too, they were very canny. They knew what was going on internationally at that time. They knew about discourses of creative industries. They knew they could use them to to their advantage. They knew about discourses of global cities. They knew about the idea of reclaiming an old industrial site, arts-led gentrification. They even would spoon feeding some of these discourses to the government at the time when they were trying to save 798. There was a kind of rash of book publications leading up to the uh, planned demolition. So at the turn of the century, artists like Ai Weiwei started claiming the buildings and compounds of the city with the aim of creating a space for art and artists in the city. But they're also involved in the claiming and production of urban space more generally. So Ai Weiwei's art district, Taotandi, is a really interesting example. Talk us through it. Okay. It's interesting because it also helps us blur our ideas of state and non-state in China and of public and 
and private. So Tautandi used to be a commune and it was decollectivized in the late 70s and the 80s. So it was considered rural land. It was zoned rural and it had a local government who was obviously like a party, an extension of the party, and they were supposed to manage this rural land. In China, rural land is owned by the government, which means you can't own it. It's, it's public land and it's only supposed to be used for agricultural purposes. So here you have a local government who is an extension of the party, but they started to exploit the land and rent it out to businesses that would move in, many of which were even kind of state affiliated. So again, you see this kind of confusion and and hybrid situation, very contradictory. It was only supposed to be used for these public purposes, but um, an unofficial economy started to develop there. And by the turn of the century, Ai Weiwei moved in and started to bring his friends. And he he was very good at negotiating with the local government who were quite excited to have him there because with Ai Weiwei came rents because the foreigners started to move in, the very prestigious and expensive galleries from around the world started to move in and you had a lot of tourists and students and other people from the art world were visiting this place, which um, probably the central government had very little awareness of. They would have just seen it as rural land on their maps, but at the kind of street level, the local government was benefiting from this commercial activity. And Ai Weiwei, even with the local government, arranged for these buildings to be built. They were very beautiful. He designed them. And then those buildings started to get very high rents. So the farmers started to copy the buildings so that they could get high rents too. I don't know if you know, but Ai Weiwei's design company is called Fake Design, which is you know, he, he's always playing with these ideas and you could interpret that fake um, term in many different ways. But then, so the farmers started building fake fakes of their own. That's good. Um, and this kind of institution developed completely under the radar of the central government and in developing, it developed a public. It developed an art public, which was very transnational, um, even though this public had been enabled by the privatisation, the unofficial privatisation of this land. In 2011, it was announced that the district was now urban because the girth of the city had grown to that extent that this was now urban land. And rather than legitimating all the buildings that the farmers and the artists had built, it now appeared that everything was going to be demolished and contracts were going to be given to people who would come in and develop the land. But the artists did put together a kind of careful campaign. Petitioning is a traditional form of political action in China, which, um, although it sounds confrontational, some argue that it actually reinforces the authority of the existing system by using the petitioning system, showing that you respect the authority of the government. But various other arguments were made about the importance of this public to the city. So this is an example where the artists were actually using the marketplace in a sense or some of the um, the effects of the marketplace that they had been able to bring about such as the develop the development of a transnational public to negotiate with the government and in the end the government um, they zoned it as a creative industries village it was a very um, fashionable policy at that time and so it remains at the moment You've been listening to City Road on 2SCR 107.3 FM in Sydney. You can find us on the web at cityroadpod.org and on Twitter at cityroadpod. I'm Dallas Rogers. See you next time.